Amen. Thank you. I'd like for you to take your Bibles today and turn with me to Colossians uh, chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 as we continue to walk through this letter uh, that Paul has written uh, to this group of Christians in Colossae, a city that he uh, himself had not been to personally, and yet one in which he displays a great deal of affection and concern for as he brings the gospel to them and as he reminds them of what Christ has done in them as they uh, stand against heretical teaching that has crept in, uh, basically seeking to lead people away from trust in Christ alone to uh, other uh, mythical and mystical spiritual pursuits. And so this morning I want to uh, continue in Colossians chapter 2. We saw last week that uh, it was because of what Christ had done in them that, uh, that they deserved, uh, that, that they were actually welcomed into God's family. And as Paul is confronting this heretical teaching, he continues to point them to the all-sufficient redeeming work of Jesus. And not only have they experienced it, Paul has experienced, and we are able to say this morning that as believers in Christ, we have experienced that all-sufficient redeeming work of Jesus. We're reminded that uh, Paul declared in verse 10 that as believers, we have been filled in Christ, that we don't need anything else. We're not lacking. We're not waiting for something additional, that if we have Jesus, we have everything we need for life and godliness. But now what he's going to show us this morning, he's going to explain how that has happened. How has Jesus filled his people? What transpired to bring that about? How has Christ accomplished this filling of believers? And what we're going to see this morning from verses 11 through 15 is that ultimately believers are filled by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So this morning, we're going to focus on that, starting in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. I'm going to ask you if you're physically able to stand with me as we read God's word out of honor for it, and then I'll let you sit down for just a little bit. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 11 and going through verse 15. Paul continues, and he says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off, the body, uh, putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses." By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed. disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I love you. And Father, I pray this morning that as we study your word, Father, that you would help us to understand it. Father, that you would convict us of our sin and help us to see uh, how Jesus has brought us into a new state of righteousness that we could not find ourselves. And so, Father, I pray that you would teach your people this morning, that you would feed them by your word as only you can. Father, help us to see the beauty of Christ one more time. And we'll praise you 
We ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated for just a moment. There are three things I mentioned to you that are ultimately focused on in these verses, and it's going to get a little weird at first, I admit to you. And we're going to talk about some things that I won't be able to go fully into, and I encourage you to talk about them as families if you desire. But ultimately, Jesus is able to fill his people by his own death, burial, and resurrection. And this is what Paul is going to appeal to, to show that this is the means by which God has accomplished the filling of his people and the rescue of his people. And what I want to point to you this morning is, number one, that believers are filled by the death of Jesus. In verse 11, as Paul continues what he's already been sharing, talking about the fact that, that Christ has accomplished all this in verse 10, that you have been filled with him who is the head of all rule and authority, he goes on and says, in him, meaning Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So remember, in him is a constant refrain throughout the entire letter. In him, in him, meaning in Jesus. Everything that God has promised to his people as a result of redemption is secured in Christ. That all that matters really when it comes to whether we are right with God or not is whether we're in Jesus or not. If you're in him, then you have everything you need. You are filled by God with everything necessary to live a life that gives him glory and righteousness and, and righteous glory and worship. And if you're not in him, then you are are still in your sin, still under the wrath of God, still deserving of punishment because of your rebellion. And so Paul continues that refrain that he's been using throughout the letter that Jesus is central in salvation. All the promises of God are found only in Christ and our union with him. Well, how is that possible? How can that be accomplished? Well, Paul focuses on the death of Jesus, and he uses a metaphor that you, you and I may not be terribly comfortable with. Verse 11, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. All right, now I'm, <laughs> uh, I'm not going to explain all this to you. Okay? There, there are some things that you as a family can go home and you can explain some of these concepts. Um, I'm sure... Uh, I'm, I'm assuming that most everybody in the room is familiar with circumcision. Okay, if not, look it up. When you, well, don't look it up. Just ask somebody later. But I'm assuming that you're familiar with it in some form or fashion. And you might have asked yourself at some point in your Christian life, why did God ask him to do that? That just doesn't seem right. Well, let's remember, what is circumcision about, right? If we're here... Paul is making the connection between circumcision and what Jesus has done. So what was circumcision about in the Old Testament? Well, in Genesis chapter 17, it speaks of God calling upon uh, Abraham and his descendants to practice circumcision in direct connection to God's covenant relationship with them. That because of this covenant relationship, they were going to uh, circumcise their, their children in order to show that they were part of God's family. There was a picture of belonging to God in covenant with him. What's a covenant, by the way? Well, a covenant is a relationship of surrender where a weaker party surrenders totally to a stronger sovereign ruler. 
That's exactly what's happening with Abraham. God is coming and making a, uh, making a covenant, a commitment to Abraham and his descendants that God would be their God, they would be his people, and this is sealed and signified by circumcision. Now, I'm going to show you real quick, just real fast, from Genesis 15 where this all stems from. In Genesis 15, we see God. Uh, God's commitment in covenant with Abraham. And I want to read this to you real quick. Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out, of, out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess but he said, O oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Right? That's quite the shopping list. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Verse 17, and when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between those pieces. And that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Makes sense, doesn't it? You get it? No, that seems weird, doesn't it? All of that talk seems absolutely foreign to us because we don't do this anymore. But what was God showing in Genesis 15? He was making a commitment, a covenant relationship with Abram. And in order to signify that covenant relationship, he called for Abram to bring these animals, and the animals were cut in half and laid. And then guess what God does? God walks down the middle of the halves that were cut. Why? That is weird. Well, what he was symbolizing was, may this happen to me. If I'm unfaithful to the promise that I've made, right? The cutting of the animals was a picture of what should happen if you were unfaithful to the covenant. And God alone walks through them to say, I'm going to maintain the covenant. Why? Because he knows Abram. He knows Abram's going to fail. He knows his descendants are going to fail. And God takes all of it upon himself. And he says, may this happen to me if the covenant is violated. Now fast forward two chapters to Genesis chapter 17, and as God is talking to Abram about that covenant relationship, he says, circumcise yourself and your offspring. Why? 
to mark his people for sure. For sure. But why that? Can't we, can't we, couldn't we like, I don't know, cut our finger? You know? Maybe cut our hair off? Why circumcise? Have you ever thought of that? Why that of all things? Well, what was God's promise to Abram as part of the covenant? What was God going to do for him? He was going to give him offspring that would be as numerous, right? Look up at the stars. So shall your offspring be. So God's promise in the covenant relationship with Abram was that he would have so many offspring it would be impossible to count. And notice what the mark or the sign of the covenant is. He is to circumcise himself and his offspring. Right? I'm trying to be delicate. The cutting off of flesh was a picture of what would happen if there was unfaithfulness to the covenant. And the promise God made to Abram was connected to his offspring and his seed. Do you see now why circumcision might be used as a sign? Why it wouldn't be his finger and it wouldn't be his hair? Because that wasn't connected to the promise God made. God promised him a son. God promised him offspring. And as a picture of that, he calls for him to be circumcised along with his family. He, it's the picture of cutting off of flesh. And ultimately, that picture was to point us to a greater reality. Because in cutting off the flesh, guess what happened? Shedding of blood. I wonder if this is pointing us to anything. Oh, wait, Paul does. Because <laughs> what he tells us here is that in him, you, he's talking to Christians, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So he's not talking about physical now. He's saying what happened in the Old Testament was a picture of something that God was planning to do and that this is found not in a physical act, but he says this is a circumcision made without hands. It's a spiritual act inwardly that God produces. And he says that you were circumcised by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Okay, so now he's connecting some dots for us. Circumcision in the Old Testament, which was a picture of the cutting off of flesh in order to demonstrate what should happen in rebellion against God and in unfaithfulness to his covenant promise and relationship. What Jesus does is he fully accomplishes what that was picturing. Remember the cutting of the flesh, the cutting of the body. He says, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So we are filled in Jesus. And how is that accomplished? Well, rather than a small portion of flesh being cut off, Jesus was going to give up his entire body. He was going to be cut off. 
He was going to be separated. He was going to pay. The shedding of blood would fall on him. And it wouldn't be a portion of flesh. It would be his entire body. So when you look at the cross, what you're seeing is the picture circumcision was giving you is fully realized in Jesus. Because as he hangs there, he is a picture of our sin. And he's being treated as if he was completely unfaithful to the covenant promises of God. And he was the one who should bear the punishment for it. And so we are circumcised not with one made with hands, but with one God produces inwardly. And we're circumcised by what Jesus did on the cross. Because what Jesus did on the cross is his body was being cut off so that we might be with God again. He was cut off for our Sin. And so by the circumcision of Christ, he took the punishment of our covenant breaking upon himself, thereby defeating death, sin, and Satan. And what we're told in Colossians uh, chapter 2 is that because Jesus did that, we are counted as righteous with God. Because Jesus did that, our punishment has been paid and we've been circumcised, set apart for God. Because Jesus would give up his whole body. Kent Hughes says, quote, circumcision provides a gruesome metaphor for Jesus' crucifixion. The violent removal of his entire body in death. He was cut off for our sin. So by the circumcision of Christ, he took the punishment of our covenant breaking. And because of that, we are now set free from bondage to sin because of what Jesus, remember the flesh is a picture of that which is in opposition to God. The body of flesh is a picture of sin. And so what happens by the circumcision of Jesus, that body of flesh has been cut off from us. That we share in the death of Christ. When he died, so too in Jesus, we died with him. You with me so far? We died with Jesus when he died in, when we're in him. That counts for us and we share in it. And it means that when Jesus, by his death on the cross, cuts off the body of flesh, it's a picture of the power of sin being annihilated so that you no longer are under the power of sin. It does not exercise dominion over you. You're not in bondage to sin anymore because Jesus died in your place and was punished in your place. You can actually share in the death of Jesus and sin no longer holds sway over you. It's no longer all-powerful. Instead, you've been set free from that bondage because of what Jesus has done. Romans chapter 6, Paul states this again in a slightly different way in verse 6 and 7. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, that we who would, uh, that, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So because Jesus died, we share in his death. And when we share in his death, that means we are no longer enslaved to sin. Praise be to Jesus alone. We can have power over sin because of what Jesus has done, because he was cut off. We are able to be counted as righteous. I want to remind you in the Old Testament, what happened to people who were unclean? Well, they were put outside the camp. They were cut off from the community. Right? That's the picture. Being cut off from the community of God's people. 
And they could not return until what? Until they had been purified again. Jesus, when he died on the cross, was killed outside the city. Jesus was put outside the camp. And the only way we could be counted clean again is to be purified. When Jesus was put outside the camp for us, he was cleansing us by his blood so that we could be with God again. And that picture of circumcision, that metaphor, finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Instead of a small portion of the flesh, Jesus would give up his entire body so that we might be filled in him. So believers are filled by the death of Jesus. Number two, believers are filled by the burial and resurrection of Jesus. It doesn't end just at the cross. We've been told, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And so Paul continues this picture from the death of Jesus on the cross to now his burial. And he says we were buried with him in baptism. In Christ, when we're in union with him, we have been buried with him. We share in his burial. And that is symbolically shown in baptism. But the baptism he's referring to here is the work of God. What God accomplishes in redeeming and saving his people. Just as baptism that we do in the water is a picture and a reenactment of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And our death to our old self. Burial with Jesus, risen into new life with him. That same picture is to show us what God accomplishes inwardly. And we are told that when we trust in Jesus and are buried with him, we share in his burial. Jesus' death on the cross satisfied the Father's righteous wrath against all our sin and set us free from the bondage to sin that one time held us captive. And when we're told that we are buried with him, I believe the picture that Paul is giving us is not only have you died, but that that old life has been buried with Jesus. Who you used to be before you knew Christ that person is gone. That old self has died. And that old self has been buried with Jesus. That old life is no more. It doesn't mean we don't struggle. It doesn't mean we don't still start to dance back in it. But what it tells us is that definitively what God has done through Jesus is that old person is no longer there. The old has passed, the new has come. And when we were buried with him in baptism, that means that old life, that old life that Jason used to live, that has been buried with Christ. It is a settled fact never to be brought back again. The new self has been born. Who you used to be before salvation is buried. Praise God. You're not marked by that old life anymore. Amen. Believers participate in the death of Christ and in the burial of Jesus. 
And that's the picture of what God is accomplishing in the hearts of his people. Power over sin, no longer in bondage, enslaved to sin. The old self has been put away. The old self has died. And so we are filled in Christ by his death, by his burial, and by his resurrection. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. So circumcised, buried, raised, all speaking of the definitive work of Jesus. These are all past tense words. This has been done for you, Paul says. That is the definitive accomplished work of Jesus through his own death, his own burial, and his own resurrection for us. And so spiritual life comes through Jesus' death, described as circumcision, and we find that new life now through Jesus is victory over that death. And remember, the old life was marked by bondage to sin, and that life has been put away. And guess what has come now? The new life has come, where we're able to walk in allegiance to Jesus and actually please our God. That has been accomplished by Jesus on the cross, in his burial, and in his resurrection. The old self has died, the new creation has been born, and now we are able as Christians to walk filled by God in Jesus and we're told that this is through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Christ from the dead. As Christians, we believe, we trust in God's powerful, all-sufficient provision of his own son. The one who alone conquers death can alone bring new life to those who were once marked by death. Believers are filled in Christ, by Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, and if you trust in him through faith, you share in his work, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. This is the definitive work of God for his people. You didn't deserve it. You didn't do anything for it. He just gave it by his immense grace and love. So what does this mean for us? Finally, believers are fully forgiven by God. Not partially, not mostly. If you are a Christian, you are fully forgiven by God. That old life does not mark you anymore. Your identity is not in the old self. You are a new creation brought about by the definitive atoning work of Jesus. He says in verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross Notice he says, and you who were dead, God made alive. If we're ever going to be made alive, it's not going to be because of us. It's going to be because of the initiating work of God. He's going to rescue his people. You who were dead, God has made alive. And so he comes to us first. We don't find him first. The Bible tells us there is none who seeks after God. 
But good news, God sought us because of his love. And he says, you who were dead in the uncircumcision of your flesh. Who's he talking about? Who would that be referring to? Well, that'd probably be the Gentiles, right? Because the Gentiles didn't practice circumcision. And so they would have been looked at as the people who were outside of God's covenant promises. They weren't part of his family, right? So they were, there were many at the time in the first century who were saying to Gentiles who were coming to Jesus, you have to be circumcised too. And what did the church decide definitively in Acts chapter 15? You don't have to be circumcised outwardly because what matters is not a circumcision of, made by hands, but the circumcision that God makes of the heart. So he's referring to Gentiles here. He says, you were dead apart from the promises of God outside the covenant. And then he says, you who were, made dead, you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us. What's Paul done? Taken Gentiles and Jews and thrust them together and said, you're both saved by the same manner. You're both rescued by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's not about outward circumcision. It's about what God is doing in the heart to rescue. He says, you were dead, and God has made you alive together with us. Together, we're all saved by the same Jesus and the same work on the cross. So in Christ, all find themselves transformed from spiritual death to spiritual life, members of the same household and heirs of the same inheritance. There's not two families of God. There's one people God is making, and every single person who has been rescued by Jesus is part of the household of God and an heir of the inheritance that has been promised from the early days to Abraham. You'll be part of God's family. He'll be your God, and you'll be his people. All of that is accomplished by Jesus on the cross, by his being cut off in death, giving up his whole body, by him being buried, we share in his burial, the old life is gone, and by his resurrection, we too are raised into new life, spiritual life that we enjoy right now. And God has done all of that by the work of Jesus who was paying for our sin so that we could be forgiven fully by God. Paul says, God made, a, made alive together with him, made us all together, having forgiven us all our trespasses. See, God can't simply ignore sin. He can't simply act like it didn't happen. He can't tell you, now go and just try to do better. He didn't soften on sin or just simply turn a blind eye to sin. Sin had to be punished. Forgiveness had to be achieved. And how is forgiveness achieved? Someone has to pay the penalty for it. And so Paul says we are fully forgiven as Christians in Christ because Jesus has canceled the record of debt that stood against us. We're able to be forgiven because somebody finally paid the price that we couldn't pay. And how did Jesus do it? He canceled our sin. He canceled the record of debt that, we, that stood against us. And by canceling, it means he blots it out. He erases the record. It doesn't show any sin remain, that we're guilty of anything. That's how he's able to present us before the Father and say, look, they're perfect. I made them clean because that's what he accomplished on the cross. He took all of our sin upon himself to erase the debt that we owed God. And what was the debt for our sin that we owed him? Death. The wages of sin 
is death. So how are we going to be forgiven fully by God? How are we finally going to have this erased, this record of debt that stood again? How are we going to have, someone's got to die for us. And so Jesus made us right before God having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. And how did he accomplish that? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus took upon himself the penalty for our covenant unfaithfulness. That picture of cutting, of this should happen if there is covenant unfaithfulness, Jesus took it upon himself so that we could actually be forgiven. And he set aside that record of debt that stood against us. By the way, that's perfect tense. That's speaking of permanent removal. That's speaking of gone, a debt that has been paid in full, never to be charged Again, when you're saved by Jesus, when his blood is, is applied to you, you are no longer going to stand before God in any form of condemnation at all. Even when you blow it later today, guess what? Jesus already canceled it. When you blow it next week, guess what? Jesus already erased it. When you stand before God, you will not be read a list of everything you've done wrong. Instead, your list has been wiped clean. Listen, some of us have cleaned our lives up pretty good. But if people really peered into our hearts, our minds, we wouldn't be so confident. But before God, if you're in Jesus, you stand there with your record having been erased. And all God sees of you is the perfection of Jesus. You have been, remember the heretical teachers are trying to say there's more. There's better fulfillment. You can be full other places besides Jesus. Guess what Paul is saying? There is no one who can give this to you but Christ. No one. You can't find it anywhere else. No one can erase your debt before God. Don't listen to these false teachers who are trying to lead you away from Christ. Realize there is only one person who could accomplish that and did accomplish it, and it was Jesus. In him, we have full deliverance from the wrath of God. Believers are fully forgiven by God. And by doing so, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities by triumphing over them. God has demonstrated his power through the conquering work of Jesus. Jesus died as a lowly servant, leading to his exaltation over all powers and all authorities. Because of that, we're able to celebrate this morning. Because of what he's done for us, that we are filled in Jesus, and we are able to proclaim this morning that this is the definitive work of Christ that can never be taken away, that is ours in him. And this morning, what I would encourage you to do as a result is first of all, turn the TV off. What I encourage you this morning, here's how we're going to apply this. You say, what in the world does that have to do with me right now? Okay, great, that's awesome, now what do I do? If you're a Christian, what this means is you and I need to be reminded of these facts every day. 
We need to remember every day what Christ has done for us. Why? So that we will not be, pursu- we will not be pulled away or enticed by other things to find our satisfaction in. When we realize we've been filled in Christ, that we need no one else and nothing else besides Jesus, then we are actually able to live in a way that gives him glory and honor. And so you as a Christian and me as a Christian every morning, I need to remember that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. That that old self is dead. It has been crucified and the power of sin over us as Christians has been obliterated. We are able to stand against sin because Christ has conquered it for us in his death. But not only that, that we've been buried with Jesus. We need to remember that every single morning. We've been buried with Jesus. That old life, that old Jason, he he doesn't have sway anymore. He's gone. The new creation, what God has made me in him is the one that's alive now and the one that's living now. And I need to remember that definitive word of him putting off the old and putting on the new, that I can actually live a life marked by righteousness and marked by glory for God. And then finally, I need to be reminded that I've been raised with Christ every day. I need to be reminded that that not only do I have life now and have abundant life now, but God has promised that I will dwell with him forever. Eternal life is mine because Christ has conquered death for me. We have been crucified with Christ. We have been buried with Christ and we've been raised with Christ. So all these things are true and oh how we have to remember it and preach it to ourselves every single day. We need to be reminded constantly that this is what God has done. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you haven't trusted in him, then I hope you see clearly that you cannot save yourself that you are a sinner who stands guilty before God, deserving of separation from him forever, but forgiveness is available. Redemption is available. Rescue is available, but only through Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. You need to trust in his work, not your own, for the rescue of your soul. And the Bible says, that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God doesn't turn away those who call upon him. This morning, I don't know what the condition of your heart is. I don't know if you know Jesus or not. I don't know if you've tried to fill up your life with religious activity, hoping that does it. But what I want you to see this morning is that it's only in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection that we can find fullness of life now. The only way we can be forgiven, the only way that we can live with God and dwell with him is because of what Christ has done. May that be our story. May we remind ourselves of that every single day so that he might receive more glory as we live for him. This morning, we're going to pray. I'm going to ask you to respond to God in your seat, whether you need to pray for forgiveness from God whether you need to pray that he would save your soul, maybe that's what you need to do this morning. Maybe as a Christian you need to pray that God would remind you once again of his conclusive work that's been done on the cross for you and to remember that every day is meant to be lived in devotion to this one who has given everything so that we might be fully forgiven of our sin. Maybe today you need to confess sin as a Christian. Maybe today you just need to thank God. Maybe today you just need to adore who Jesus is. Whatever it is, we need to respond to God this morning. I'm gonna pray for us. And let's do business with God. Heavenly Father, I love you. Thank you for your word. Lord, for the promises that we have that Jesus has accomplished everything so that we might be filled in him. 
And Lord, I pray for people who are watching this or listening to this, Father, I pray that if they don't know you, I pray that you would draw them to yourself, God, you would show them their desperate need for Christ, that they would see the ugliness of their sin and turn away from it and trust only in what Christ has done. That they would find forgiveness, full forgiveness in him alone. And Father, for us as Christians, you, you need to remind us daily of who we used to be and who we are now. God, that we would remember afresh and anew every morning that we have died with Jesus. That the power of sin no longer holds us. That we've been buried with Jesus. That that old self has been put away and the new self has come. And God, we need to be reminded every day that we are raised with Christ. That we have new life, eternal life that will never be taken away. Oh God, may we reflect on these things and may it be the burning passion of our hearts to tell others about this good news. That as we are forgiven, so too can they be. Oh God, I pray that this morning we would respond to you. Maybe we just need to give you adoration. Maybe we just need to give you thanks. Maybe we need to confess sin. Maybe we need to trust in you for the first time. Father, whatever it is, help us to respond to you alone. We'll give you praise. Father, for the heart in this room, that desperately needs to know Jesus, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. Father, draw them that they would know your goodness. Father, they'd worship you. They were created by you to worship your holy name. And Father, I pray that you would rescue souls this morning. And Father, for the one who's here this morning, who believes in you, has trusted in Christ, but is carrying around sin and, and the struggle with sin, Father, I pray that they would confess it to you this morning, knowing that that sin has been forgiven already in Christ. And Father, I pray that we would have hearts that want to adore you, to sing your praises, that we didn't deserve this salvation, but you brought it anyways, and we are so grateful for that. So, Father, help us this morning to give you praise and thanksgiving for the rescue you've brought. And Lord, as we go from this place, we ask that you would help us every single day to preach the gospel to ourselves. That we once were outcast strangers. We were aliens from your promises. But we have been brought near by Jesus. That we have been included as Christians in the promises that you made to Abraham and his family. God, we're grateful. And Father, I pray that you would help us to worship you. Lord, in this place, I pray that you would convict hearts and you would rescue as only you can. And Father, we'll give you all the praise for it when it happens. Because you are the one who took dead people and made them alive. We sing praises to you. We thank you. So Lord, in every one of our families, may Christ be our boast. May he be exalted. May he be worshiped. We ask it all in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.